0: Welcome to The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston.
1: And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost.
0: It is Thursday, November 8th, and here's what's on the docket this week.
1: The midterms are over, the Democrats have recaptured the House, and suddenly there's talk of bipartisan cooperation on drug pricing. Stat Washington correspondent Lev Fasher joins us to talk about what to expect under a new Congress.
2: Data being presented this week at a big cancer immunotherapy meeting have been kind of disappointing. We'll ask, why aren't cancer
0: treatments combining immunotherapies working any better? Novartis floated a price tag for a gene therapy it's developing that would set a new record for the world's most expensive drug. We'll ask, can they really do that? But first, a word about Stat+.
2: Enjoying The Readout Loud? You can get more exclusive coverage from Adam, Rebecca, Damien, and others at STAT with a STAT Plus subscription. STAT Plus delivers daily, market-moving coverage of biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. By subscribing today, you'll get access to exclusive stories from our award-winning team every day. And as a special thanks to you, our podcast listener, subscribe to STAT Plus now and enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus, and thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener. Let's get right to the big headline, the results in the battle for control of Congress. Democrats taking the House of Representatives, surpassing the 23 seats needed to seize control and flip the majority. In the Senate, however...
0: A very different story. The Republicans holding on to power, even picking up seats, president. So as you have probably heard by now, the Democrats have taken back the House and the Republicans have kept the Senate. But it's worth talking about what a pivotal role the issue of drug pricing has played
2: in the midterms, both on Election Day and in its aftermath.
1: Consider this. About 40 percent of Americans said health care was the biggest issue in forming their vote this year. Health care is inclusive of plenty of things beyond drug pricing, of course. But drug pricing was the healthcare issue that took center stage the day after the midterms. And remarkably, everyone was on the same page.
0: Right. So President Trump, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and the likely soon-to-be House Speaker Nancy Pelosi all made comments on Wednesday that gestured at a willingness to work across the aisle on drug prices.
1: Joining us today to map out the path forward is Lev Fasher, Stats Washington correspondent, who's been leading our coverage of the midterm elections.
0: Lev thanks for coming on the
3: show. Hey guys, happy to be back.
2: All right, Lev. So first off, I want to ask you about the election night itself. You spent the evening at the watch party of Bob Hugan, the former Celgene executive turned Republican Senate candidate. Now as expected, Hugan lost the New Jersey Senate race to incumbent Democrat Bob Menendez. so let's listen to Hugan's concession speech. Let's listen.
3: So, Lev, what was that party like? Yeah, as you'd expect, it was subdued. Hugen lost. The returns came in pretty quickly. And, you know, there was a moment when Hugen was actually delivering kind of a, a beginning of the night speech. And then ABC called the race for Menendez as he was speaking. The bar turned off a lot of the TVs. So uh, a subdued night. But a couple things stood out to me. Uh, one that healthcare and, and Huggins passed it at Selgene just really were non factors. The voters I spoke to were really much more enthusiastic about voting in a Republican and voting out Bob Menendez than, you know, they were about health policy issues or Hugan's successful career in in business. And when Hugan really very graciously took a bunch of time to talk to reporters after the race was called, he was just insistent that the drug industry has, has gotten a bad rap in American politics. He said his past at Celgene had no influence on his loss. He did also say that before he jumped into the race, he'd been eyeing a return to a career in life sciences and in neuroscience, he said, or in health IT. So keep an eye out for uh, Hugen in the private sector. Uh, Not the happiest night for him on Tuesday in New Jersey.
1: So next, I want to talk about David Mitchell. He's the patient advocate who runs the group Patients for Affordable Drugs. And the super PAC arm of that group poured about $10 million into trying to elevate the issue of drug pricing in the midterms by supporting or opposing certain politicians. So, Love, I want to know what you think. How did Patients for Affordable Drugs do on Tuesday night overall?
3: Well, we asked David. He said they did great. He said it was a great night for drug pricing. Rebecca, you and I had written that, you know, of that $10 million, a lot of it went toward races that weren't particularly competitive. But if you look at four races that were competitive, Patients for Affordable Drugs seems to have done really very well. They won in a Texas house district where where Pete Sessions lost. He'd been a target of theirs. Bob Hugan, of course, lost in New Jersey. He'd been a, a huge enemy of theirs. And it looks like Bruce Poliquin, another Republican target. As of this interview, the Poliquin race has not been called, but the expectation among main political experts seems to be that Jared Golden, the Democratic challenger, is going to win that race. One huge blow for them was the loss of Claire McCaskill, who had really campaigned on drug pricing, I think more aggressively than any other candidate in the country. But three for four in four competitive races would be a very good night for them. Even one of the the safe races that Patients for Affordable Drugs had invested in, Tom Carpers in Delaware, he won by a a smaller margin than he had in his previous two elections in a very blue seat in Delaware. So they were happy even that one of their targets in a very non-competitive race just did not do as well as he had in the past two cycles. So overall, they were very happy with the results down the line in races competitive and non-competitive.
1: So it was overall a great night for patients for affordable drugs. But of course, election results do not automatically lower drug prices. I called up David Mitchell the day after the election. And when we talked, he was really careful, I think, to make clear that his group's work is not done. Here's what David had to say.
2: Election results that set the stage for reform is not the same as getting results and achieving reform. And so... Now the work is to try and translate yesterday's election results into real results that will actually lower drug prices for consumers and patients.
1: And, love, I know you talked to David in more specifics about what's next for his group. Tell us exactly what Patients for Affordable Drugs wants to work on going forward.
3: Yeah, so they basically have an immediate concern and then uh, some long-term planning that they have to get done. They are immediately going to turn to trying to stop the pharmaceutical industry from lobbying for a fix on the, the so-called Medicare donut hole, the, the coverage gap for seniors, which the industry had tried to attach to an opioids bill in the last few months and, and didn't do so successfully. And now there's concern that in the lame duck Congress, that could be uh, something that is attached to a, a spending bill, which is really the last thing Congress has to do. So that's the first priority for David. Secondarily, they're just going to sit down, they're going to plan, and they're going to look at forward-looking legislation in Congress, how they can be helpful on legislation that aims to lower drug prices. And I'm not just talking about Washington. They're actually really excited about efforts that are underway in a lot of state houses. And there are a lot of states with uh, newly empowered Democratic majorities in their legislatures who are very enthusiastic about addressing drug prices at the state level. So no shortage of policy work for patients for affordable drugs.
2: So Lev, I wanted to pivot the conversation forward a little bit to January When the new Congress is seated, Um, as we mentioned at the top of the segment, there was a lot of talk the day after the election about bipartisanship uh, on drug pricing. Uh, Is that for real, Lev? I mean, what's the lowest hanging fruit that a new Congress could work on early next
3: year? Yeah, I, I think a skeptic would say it is hard to envision Nancy Pelosi's House of Representatives and Mitch McConnell's Senate working closely together on really bold legislation to address high drug prices. But look, the day after the election or in the hours after the election, Nancy Pelosi, McConnell, Chuck Schumer, the top Democrat in the Senate, and President Trump all pointed to drug pricing as a potential area where they could do some bipartisan work Uh, our colleague Nick Florco wrote that the CREATES Act, a, a bill that would really make it easier for generic drug makers to get their products to market, could be an easy first step. There's talk of removing Medicaid rebate caps uh, or, or changing some, some policy with regard to, to Medicare. And then so-called uh, pay for delay, where brand name drug makers can pay generic makers to, to keep cheaper drugs off the market, a bill to crack down on on that practice, also has some bipartisan movement. Uh, in terms of the bolder democratic proposals, it's it's harder to see something like Medicare Part D negotiation becoming law. But it is certainly an interesting question what Nancy Pelosi can get her democratic controlled House of Representatives to do, even if it's just kind of to show Democrats' political chops and and what would happen if they were to control both chambers of Congress.
0: So, With that shuffle that you mentioned, it of course means that lawmakers are going to be changing key leadership roles on committees that oversee health policy. Which legislators are you going to be watching most closely in the new Congress?
3: We want to look at the committee chairs in the House that's going to be Frank Pallone from New Jersey, a Democrat who's going to chair the House Energy and Commerce Committee, and then Richie Neal from Massachusetts. He's going to chair that House Ways and Means Committee. Uh, Those are really the two committees that have the most jurisdiction over health policy and, and bills that would touch the drug industry. It's, of course, worth noting that Pallone and Neal, much like their Republican counterparts on those committees, are really prime targets of pharmaceutical industry and, and health product industry campaign contributions. So it's it's hard to say what legislation they'll be willing to move. Also worth considering that Anna Eshoo, who's really been a prime target of Patients for Affordable Drugs, she could chair the Energy and Commerce Health Subcommittee, where a lot of those bills originate. And in the Senate, worth noting that Chuck Grassley is likely to chair the, the Finance Committee. He's already done some bipartisan work, but uh, hard to see him advancing some more aggressive democratic proposals, even if they pass the House.
0: Lev, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me, guys.
2: So to get an industry view, we reached out to Al Nylam Pharmaceutical CEO, John Moraginori. He's also the chair of the trade group Bio. His company, we should note, has pledged to limit price increases for its current and future approved drugs to the rate of inflation. But many of the companies in the trade group he represents have not hesitated to hike the price of their drugs. Here's what Maraginori had to say about the midterm election results.
0: I am confident that whatever new policies emerge, there will be a keen interest to preserve market-based, time-limited rewards for innovation. There may even be an opportunity for some sort of a grand bargain between the industry, insurers, and the administration that limits price increases and also limits patient, out-of-pocket costs. At the end of the day, it's those patient, out-of-pocket costs that's really creating the political problem for our politicians. So for the most part, that response wasn't surprising. But what was interesting to me is the grand bargain that John kind of proposed there at the end. I hadn't heard any industry folks kind of describing, um, even vaguely, a form of legislation that might kind of tie up all the loose ends that has everybody fighting it out. And obviously, we have no idea whether such a bill will ever come to pass. But it's interesting that someone from the industry is looking forward in that way.
1: Immunotherapy has changed the lives of patients around the world. But the biggest brains in oncology are still struggling with one big question. Why don't the latest treatments work for more people?
0: So as we record this podcast, oncologists and cancer researchers are in Washington, D.C. for the annual meeting of the Society of Immunotherapy of Cancer, or SITC, for short. And you can bet that that question is a big topic of discussion.
2: Yeah. And as the name implies, the focus of the SITC meeting is cancer immunotherapy. Now This is a biotech podcast. So, of course, we've discussed cancer immunotherapy quite often. But for those that need a refresher, we're referring to the drugs that work by signaling or activating a person's own immune system to target and kill cancer.
1: Cancer immunotherapies have transformed the way that doctors treat many types of cancer. They're not cures for some patients. They are, to be clear, life-extending drugs.
0: And as you'd expect, those immunotherapies also generate billions of dollars of sales for the biopharma companies that make and sell them. Yeah, Damien, but, you know, not all is rosy in the land of cancer immunotherapy. And
2: as we just mentioned, these are great drugs for some patients. For example, the most successful and well-known type of immunotherapy called checkpoint inhibitors are only effective for about one-third of patients. For a majority of cancer patients, these checkpoint inhibitors don't do much of anything.
1: Which brings us back to the SITSI meeting. For the past few years, biotech and pharma companies have invested heavily in new research aimed at making immunotherapy drugs like checkpoint inhibitors more effective for a larger number of cancer patients. They're trying to do this by developing different types of immunotherapy drugs that can be used in combination with checkpoint inhibitors.
0: And it all makes sense on paper, and just about everyone believes that combination therapy is sort of the gilded future of cancer treatment. The problem is that so much of the clinical data generated to date from these combinations have been just sort of mediocre. Yeah, and a lot of different approaches
2: are being tried. You know, if you helicoptered in to the CITC meeting this week, you'd hear presentations on like this alphabet soup of promising biologic targets, Sting, IL-2, LAG-3, OX-40, TLR, to just name a few.
1: But so far, adding these new drugs to checkpoint inhibitors have not produced the kind of stop-the-presses results that cancer researchers had hoped for. And really, a lot of the data is just too early to interpret or not impressive at all.
2: So this raises a simple question. Is the industry on the right track with combination immunotherapy? What if none of these approaches work and the efficacy that we see today with checkpoint inhibitors on their own
0: is pretty much the best result we're going to get for cancer patients? Damien, you have any thoughts on that? So I think the situation you just described would be like the bleakest possible scenario. But I do think that infinitely smart people have kind of come back to earth a little bit on the optimism that they used to sort of espouse around this area. One thing that I often think back to is is a recent big cancer conference was host to lots of combination therapy presentations. And yet the big takeaway from that big meeting was that combining a checkpoint inhibitor with chemotherapy, which predates any of us, was the most powerful thing that was demonstrated at that conference. You know, Damien, I think it's worth noting that You know, if you go back to the early
2: days of immunotherapy, the early days of the checkpoint inhibitors, you know, those clinical trials were, again, they were not all that great. There was a lot of questions about whether those drugs would work. And and over time, the data obviously strengthened to where we are today. But I think your point about chemotherapy is is a really good one. And it's, you know, it's somewhat surprising and maybe a little bit disappointing to a lot of people that, you know, the most effective combination approach today in immunotherapy does involve
0: like old-fashioned kind of toxic chemotherapy.
1: And of course, there's a Wall Street impact to all of this, right?
0: Right. So the stock market value of biotech and drug companies trying to develop combination immunotherapies have come way down as, as we describe this exuberance has sort of deflated. So maybe the best way to illustrate Wall Street's concerns is by looking at the performance of
2: a basket of cancer drug stocks that was created by biotech investor and friend to read out loud, Brad Longcar. Not all of the stocks in this basket are focused on immunotherapy, but they are all cancer drug makers. And the value of this cancer stock basket peaked back in March, but has dropped by almost half since then.
1: And that valuation peak occurring in March is interesting, right? Because that was right before the failure of a combination immunotherapy clinical trial who was in phase three conducted by the biotech company Insight.
2: Yeah, that's right, Rebecca. And, you know, that failure seemed to be the trigger for kind of this negative sentiment shift. And I think, you know, until we see a breakthrough with some positive clinical data at research meetings like SITSI, you know, the skepticism could linger. Can a single dose of a single drug really be worth $4 million?
1: That was the conversation this week after Novartis told the world that a shot of its new gene therapy would be cost-effective at that price. Now, keep in mind, Novartis didn't say it was actually going to charge $4 million. But the headline alone led to lots of gnashing of teeth in comparisons to mafia extortion.
0: There's a lot going on here, so it is worth taking some time to unpack. Right. So Novartis' gene therapy is for a rare disease called spinal muscular atrophy, or SMA. Most infants who are born with the most severe form of SMA don't survive past the age of two. But in a small trial, a one-time dose of Novartis' gene therapy helped 100% of patients survive past two years. And so the company, and lots of scientists, think it could be a life-changing product.
1: So where does that $4 million come in?
0: Right. So earlier this week, Novartis did some math. Basically, the company looked at a bunch of FDA-approved rare disease treatments and compared their costs with their benefits over the course of a decade. And using that math, Novartis concluded that its gene therapy is so effective in SMA that it would be worth $4 million over 10 years.
2: Do you guys actually think that they can charge that much? You can already imagine the outrage about the quote world's most expensive drug unquote, or patients held hostage by greedy drug company.
1: Yeah, that's right, Adam. That outrage has already materialized. You can just look to Twitter, where one Twitter user found a kind of provocative comparison. Yaniv Ehrlich, he's a Columbia University computer scientist and chief scientific officer at the genealogy company MyHeritage. He looked up the average size of a ransom by the mob. Turns out, because you can look these things up online, that's $2 million per person. And he posed the provocative question, what does that comparison say about Novartis?
0: So that all might be a little bit hasty. Novartis isn't going to tell us the price of the therapy until it's actually approved. And that's not expected until early next year. But I personally, at least, really, really doubt that price will be $4 million. I kind of think this whole discussion was a deliberate effort to shape the conversation. If Novartis can make an even somewhat reasonable case that $4 million would be cost effective, then when the company reveals a price that's closer to like $1 million, it can say, look what a bargain we're giving you.
1: But of course, a million dollar price tag would still make this the most expensive drug in history of the world. And that would probably lead to the headline outrage that we talked about earlier, but it could make it also really hard to sell the treatment. You know, the system is designed to pay for drugs that patients take over a number of years. That might add up to more than $1 million over time. But of course, the cost is spread out. Paying a $1 million up front could be a very hard sell for governments and insurance companies. And let's not
2: forget about another challenge. You know, the biotech company Spark Therapeutics won the first FDA approval for a gene therapy uh, for a rare form of blindness, and they set a price tag of more than $800,000. But in the months since then, the company has actually struggled to find patients to get them on that therapy.
0: To give Novartis some credit, they addressed a lot of these issues in the presentation where they floated this $4 million figure. The company is very cognizant of all of the barriers that exist between them and actually making a product out of this gene therapy, and they've promised to talk to all the relevant parties, to work in identifying patients from the earliest stages, and also to help patients who can't afford the therapy actually get on it. But all of this is academic right now. It's very easy to say. We'll actually find out when the rubber meets the road and this drug wins approval early next year. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. But before we go, we want to tell you about a new weekly newsletter that we are just about to launch. It's going to cover West Coast biotech, life sciences, and healthcare. We're calling it Go West, and Rebecca is going to be anchoring it.
1: That's right. When we were brainstorming names for this new newsletter, someone on the stat team did suggest Baywatch, which would have been a pretty delightful name. But unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, the wise decision makers did decide that we should go with Go West. So I hope you'll subscribe. It's a free newsletter and it'll feature my original reporting as well as a roundup of headlines and things to watch on the West Coast each week.
2: Go West launches on November 14th and you'll be seeing it every Wednesday. And if you'd like to sign up, go to statnews.com slash sign up
0: slash go dash west. And thank you to Hyacinth Abinado who produced this week's episode.
1: Matthew Orr is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer.
2: And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, where you're listening from, ask us questions, or just rant about how horribly wrong we are. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. We really do appreciate the feedback.
0: See you next week.